Olá, bem-vindas a mais um SBC Fanfic, sua dose quinzenal de fanfic. Se você é nova por aqui, seja bem-vinda. Eu sou Mônica Sanoli e ajudo mulheres a se posicionarem profissionalmente através do inglês. Mas aqui no podcast a pegada é um pouco diferente. O SBC é uma discussão literária sobre romances, contos e fanfics escritos por mulheres, em português ou em inglês, que cai toda sexta-feira no seu feed. São dois programas, SBC Fanfic e SBC Novel, que inclui outras obras além de romances, como é o caso do episódio da semana passada. Se você ainda não ouviu o SBC Novel sobre Big Magic, da Elizabeth Gilbert, volte uma casa e faça as pazes com a sua criatividade. Mas hoje o assunto é fanfic. Neste episódio, seguimos com as fanfics que já estávamos lendo antes, todas em inglês. Addict, a primeira história da série Addiction, escrita pela Savannah Elise, e Blown by the Wind, que eu escrevi. Também neste episódio teremos Stand by Me, escrita pela Hannah, a.k.a. Hands of Gold, uma alemã fofíssima que curte heavy metal e gosta de Avantasia, Edgar e Andra Matos tanto quanto eu. Inclusive, foi ela que me deu a notícia quando o André faleceu, e foi uma coisa muito louca. Atualmente, ela é a única pessoa do meu círculo social, da minha bolha, que gosta mesmo do André tanto quanto eu. Então, eu senti que nós passamos por um processo de luto bem semelhante. E bom, o que eu tô falando não tem nada a ver com o episódio, mas eu acho legal fazer essa reflexão do quão pouco a gente tem em comum com algumas pessoas, às vezes, e que apesar desse pouco ser pouco, ele é o suficiente para fazer você gostar, ter carinho pela pessoa em questão. Então, é isso aí. Digam eu te amo para os seus amigos hoje, porque a gente nunca sabe o que vai acontecer amanhã, infelizmente. Voltando às nossas histórias, todos os links para elas estão na descrição do episódio. Eu recomendo que vocês visitem os respectivos sites, curtam, deem kudos e comentem para fazer o dia das autoras mais feliz. E sim, eu estou me incluindo nessa. Addict e Blown by the Wind são fanfics de 30 Seconds to Mars, mais especificamente sobre o Shannon. As duas tocam em assuntos bem delicados, como drogas, aborto, depressão e ansiedade. Se algum desses assuntos for um gatilho para você, eu peço que você não escute essas histórias, ou pelo menos que tenha cuidado ao ouvir. Lembrando que, embora as duas fics sejam sobre pessoas reais, as histórias são fictícias. Nós não conhecemos o Shannon pessoalmente, tudo que nós sabemos sobre a vida pessoal dele é fofoca, lembrem-se disso. Stand By Me é uma fanfic Eddie Kasprak, Richie Tozier, nomes que vocês devem reconhecer do filme, possivelmente do livro It, do Stephen King. Na minha opinião, uma das poucas e mais interessantes mudanças na adaptação foi a natureza do relacionamento desses dois. Na verdade, não chega a ser um relacionamento, né? O Rich no filme era apaixonado pelo Eddie, e apesar disso não ocorrer no livro, foi uma alteração que ficou muito em character, que o próprio Stephen King aprovou, e que teve tudo a ver, né? Então, aparentemente, é um chip que tá bem popular na internet. E pra ser bem sincera, eu tô louca pra ler a história que a Hannah escreveu. Eu não li antes, vai ser a primeira vez lendo aqui pra vocês. A Hannah, não custa lembrar, não tem os direitos sobre esses personagens. E este podcast não tem fins lucrativos. Vamos às histórias! <música> Addiction Series Book 1, Addict, Chapter 4 Isla was relieved by the time she'd gotten home that night. She'd rather babysit two sets of two-year-old triplets than deal with Shannon, but she had no choice. Part of her hoped he was just trying to run her off, because there was no possible way that someone could be that mean. Given the fact that her official position had changed, she figured she should at least do some research on what her responsibilities would be. She walked into her studio apartment, tossing her car keys into the bowl that sat on the shook shelf behind the door. Most of her furniture was from Ikea because she didn't really care enough to buy decent shit. 
The space was small, but she had divided it well. A large standing wardrobe and a curtain hanging from the ceiling cordoned off her bedroom, leaving the living and dining spaces open. The apartment building had once been a factory of some kind, so the entire space had an air of industrialism to it. The ceilings were high, making the room look larger than it actually was. Isla didn't mind one way or another. It was realistic for what she could afford. It always bugged her that the main characters in TV shows always lived in really cool apartments in massively expensive cities that they never would have been able to afford unless they sold their organs for profit or rented out their uterus. If this job didn't work out, she'd have to rent her own uterus out just to afford this place. It was a shoebox, but it may as well have been a penthouse for what she was paying for it. She sank down into the sofa, pulling her laptop to her on the coffee table. It was a few years old and kind of beat up. She'd been meaning to buy a new one for some time because the only way it would work was if you held it at a certain angle and rubbed the back as if you were stroking a kitten. Isla logged onto the internet and began a search for information on sober coaches. She was astonished to find that there are no regulations or required qualifications for the job. She also wondered how Jared was managing the overnights, since it was obvious Shannon couldn't be trusted alone. When she had exited rehab, she didn't have a sober coach. She had to negotiate everything on her own. Of course, she was living in a much smaller town with much less access to drugs than Los Angeles. She had no doubt that she could get her hands on anything she wanted if she looked hard enough. She also found that exercising would help. At least, that's what the site said. Isla hated exercising. Sure, she tried to walk everywhere or bike when she was just going up the street, but it was not her natural state of being. She'd rather sleep if she was being completely honest. As Isla read several articles, she was reminded of the time she'd spent in rehab and how terrifying it was for her to re-enter the real world. She felt as though every single skill she'd learned in her 21 years had vanished from her brain and she had to relearn it all from the beginning. But that was what recovery was like. You had to teach yourself how to perform everyday tasks all over again just to do them sober. For Isla, it had been difficult to make the transition because she had nowhere to go but back to her parents' farm. Rehab centers always stress that a return to a toxic environment makes for an extremely difficult recovery period, often resulting in a relapse. Alice's parents may have rid their old farm of any drugs she'd taken, but they did not welcome her home warmly. The toxic environment had nothing to do with the stashes of pills and everything to do with her unsupportive and cold parents. She could clearly remember the day she'd come home from the treatment center. Her parents weren't even at the house when her taxi cab had arrived. Her father was off moving his herd of cattle to different grazing grounds and her mother was out at her book club meeting with the other middle-aged woman from church. There was also Rick, who was slightly more effeminate than most men should be, but they weren't supposed to talk about it. She had sat outside on the front porch, waiting for her mother to come back home. And when she had pulled up in a beat-up old pickup truck, she looked less than thrilled to see her. The one thing that stood out to her much more than her mother's lackluster welcome was the extreme craving to start using again. Isla determined that it was likely because of her mother's ever-present disappointed glare. Either way, the ache had been so strong that she'd had to get out of there. She'd managed to get a job as a receptionist at a local law office, but as it is in small towns, her boss found out about her history and she was fired for some ridiculous reason. She had worked her way across the states, slowly moving toward California. She would stay long enough for people to figure out who she was before moving on. 
But when she reached Los Angeles, it seemed everyone had a drug problem. What got her fired in most cases, then, was her complete lack of qualification to do her job. Isla had skipped college in lieu of several drugged-out years following high school. Beyond a high school diploma, her marketable skills were shit. The one thing that struck Isla as odd about Shannon was that he had recovered quickly. A typical detox from a drug can last several days, yet he seemed perfectly functional the very next day he'd gone off his pills. She made a mental note to ask Jared if they had gone through the house to search for stashes. Addicts were notorious for having stashes of their drug or drink of choice hidden in secret places so they always had some whenever they needed it. Isla sighed and shut her computer, exhausted by her research. Everything she read basically told her that she would be responsible for making a schedule and keeping it with Shannon. She was basically an adult babysitter. The next morning, Isla showed up to Shannon's place and found Irvine and Jared waiting for her. She checked her phone, looking at the time. Am I late? She asked. She'd never known an iPhone to be off in terms of time, but there was a first time for everything. Irving shook his head. He was holding a manila envelope with what Isla assumed were her contract amendments. Not at all, I was just having a conversation with Jared about Shannon's recovery. Isla nodded. I wanted to ask if you'd gone through the house and checked for any stashes he may have hidden away. Jared nodded. We did that the day he went into rehab. He gave her a surprised look. I thought you didn't know much about all of this, he asked. Isla rushed to cover her tracks. I... I, um, I did some research last night, she said quickly. I figured I should learn as much as I can. Jared nodded before sliding a pair of sunglasses on his face. I'm gonna head home. Tom was coming by tonight. With that, he walked down the driveway and got into his car. Irving cleared his throat. <clears> throat> this is your new contract. No need to do anything. Look it over and ensure that everything is in order and we can have an official meeting next week. Isla nodded and took the envelope. Thanks. Shannon's inside, Irving replied, nodding his head back at the door. So is Emma. She sighed and pushed the door open, going inside. A female voice could be heard in the kitchen. Isla dropped her bag on the sofa as she passed it, heading for the voices. She appeared in the doorway and both Shannon and the woman looked up. Oh, you must be Isla, Emma said warmly. Nice to finally meet you. Irving keeps mentioning you, but I haven't gotten a chance to really meet you. I'm Emma Ledbrook. Isla shook her hand. I was apparently sent to teach you the basics of being a personal assistant and give you a crash course. Ella gave her a polite smile. Great, she said, sinking into a bar stool at the counter. First rule is never keep your client's personal information in an obvious place, Emma said. So, like on your phone, keep it listed as mom or something like that, so in case your phone is ever lost or stolen, your client's information isn't immediately at risk. Isla nodded and pulled her phone out, placing it on the counter. So, I can save it as anything, really. Emma nodded. Sure, just as long as it's not your client's name. Isla grinned to herself as she retyped Shannon's contact information to read asshole. He'd never see it, so why did it matter? The next most important thing is understanding that you will likely get a fair amount of publicity, Emma continued. You should make sure that all of your social media accounts are free of any mention of your client, including their name and photos. You'll also probably want to keep your profile private initially until people learn you're his assistant and not his girlfriend. Shannon sighed. I don't think people will think we're together. Isla looked at him. Me neither, I'm not a teenage model. Emma's eyes widened slightly. 
Irving had asked her to see how well Shannon and Isla worked together, and it was obvious there was an issue. Shannon pushed off the counter. Okay, I'm done, he said as he went for the door. You two have fun. I don't think you should be alone, Isla called after him, remembering the incident on her first day of work when he'd gone off on his own. It's my house, Isla, he said. I can do whatever the fuck I want. She watched him go helplessly. She was still unaware of where she stood and how much power she had in the situation. She certainly didn't want to overstep her bounds in front of Emma, who obviously had a close relationship with Shannon. Is he always like that? Isla asked, returning her gaze to Emma's. She shook her head. No, he's usually a complete teddy bear. Isla nodded. Shannon was probably a teddy bear because he had enough pain medication in his body to tranquilize a horse, but she kept a tidbit to herself. Emma continued in her lessons, covering everything from how to handle paparazzi, don't engage, just walk, to what to do if a press outlet contacts you directly and asks about your client. Reply no comment and keep moving. Isla's head was swimming with new information. So much so that she didn't even notice that Shannon had been gone for over an hour. He's getting high again, she thought to herself. Emma didn't seem to notice or care. Emma left about two hours later, leaving a confused and overwhelmed Isla in her wake. Ella was trying to comprehend and process all the information she had been given. She hadn't heard movement from Shannon in a while. Emma said he was probably asleep, so Ella took the opportunity to go through the house and see if there was any sign of a secret stash. She wandered through the living room, running her hands over the furniture to see if there was any indication of a hidden chamber or area. The most obvious place for an addict to hide their drugs was the place where no one spent any time. Less traffic meant less chance of your stash being discovered. Unless you were used to having people search for things in certain places. That's when you hide them where no one expects you to. Like under a god-awful coffee table or behind pictures that hadn't been moved in months. Isla got down on her hands and knees and looked up under Shannon's coffee table. Sure enough, taped to the underside of the wood surface was a small baggie of little white pills. She smiled to herself and yanked the baggie from its adhesive, clutching it tightly in her hand. She tossed it down onto the top of the table as she stood, moving to investigate another location. She turned her focus onto several books that were stacked on a shelf near the fireplace. Large coffee table books were great for hiding things behind. No one ever wanted to read them because they were coffee table books and were meant for decoration in most cases. Isla had successfully stored a bottle of pills inside her mother's copy of a coffee table book on bridges that sat on the table in their living room for years by hollowing out the center with an exacto blade. She pulled the books away from the back of the shelf and saw another small baggie taped to the back of the bookcase. It joined the other one on the table. Ella kept nosing around, discovering a total of 10 small baggies of pills in that room alone. She was surprised that no one had noticed that Shannon wasn't any better or different. If he had stashed this much around his living room, chances were that he had more stashed somewhere else. This was his safety stash, what he kept in case his dealer disappeared or he got found out. She went into the downstairs powder room and began crushing the pills up by grinding them down inside their bags under her shoe. The easiest way to get rid of these types of things was to flush them down the toilet. What the hell do you think you're doing? Shannon's voice made her look up from pouring the coarse powder down the toilet. Cleaning, she said simply, tossing one of the empty bags into the ridiculously small trash can next to the sink. She moved to start crushing another baggie up, and he shoved her out of the way, going for the others that were sitting on the vanity. She was too quick for him because she anticipated his move and put her hand over the top of the pile, blocking his target. 
Stop, she said, straining to keep his body away from hers as he struggled around her for the pills. You can't do this, he shouted, wrestling with her some more. This is mine. I thought you were supposed to be clean? She yelled over his straining groans. What does a guy who's clean need ten little bags of pills for, huh? She asked, dumping another baggie down the toilet. For a girl, she was surprisingly strong as he tried to move her. He shoved and pushed her, but she didn't budge. He finally succeeded in knocking her out of the way after several hits to her knees. She came down hard, hitting her mouth on the hard vanity countertop. Ella tasted blood and felt pain shoot through her head. What the fuck? She shouted back at him. I'm just doing my fucking job. I don't want you here. When will you get that? He yelled at her as he tried to prise the remaining few baggies from her vice grip. You don't have a choice. She shouted back, struggling as he straddled her hips and tried to pry each of her fingers back. She knew this was the desperation talking. She could see the wild fear in his eyes. Isla pulled one hand free from his grip and landed a very strong punch on his jaw, causing him to release her and sink back on his heels, clutching his injured face. Motherfucker! He exclaimed, his voice muffled by his own hands. Gone, you're a bitch! Isla shrugged and stood up, tucking one of the baggies into her pocket. Yeah, I don't care. Get up! She nudged his knee with her shoe. He got up, remembering she still had a bag in her pocket. As she had her back turned, Shannon reached around her body and tried to slide his hand into her jeans pocket. What the hell? She exclaimed, jerking her body away from his. When she imagined getting felled up by a rock star, it didn't go quite like this. Shannon, stop! I'm doing this because your family wants you to get better, not because it's fun for me. He sank down onto the hallway floor, leaning against the wall heavily. She could see the defeat on his face. You won't tell them, will you? He asked, nodding toward the bathroom, as if everything that had happened was just something that could be overlooked. Tell me what? Tomo's voice asked. He rounded the corner and stopped in his tracks when he saw Shannon, bloodied, sitting on the floor. What the hell happened? He asked. Then he saw Isla had a severely blooded leap and he gasped. Oh my god, are you okay? Isla nodded, wiping the blood from her chin with the back of her hand. I'm fine. Do you... I mean, should I take you to the hospital or something? Tomo asked in concern. I think you need stitches. What the hell happened? Isla produced the elusive baggie of pills and slid it into Tomo's hand. You didn't search well enough. I found ten of these in the living room alone. He probably has more hidden somewhere else in the house. Tomo looked at the little packet in his palm, then up at Shannon, before looking at Isla. He did that to you? He asked in shock. Not really, she replied. I slipped on the floor while he was fighting me for it. I did punch him in the face, though. Tomo fought to keep the green off of his face. Well, if there are any problems, let me know. Jared would be glad to pay. It's fine, I've had worse, she said. You've got it from here? She asked. Tomo nodded. I guess we're going to be playing hide-and-seek tonight, he said, looking at Shannon in disappointment. Blown by the Wind, Chapter 5 The smell of coffee seemed to be doing good for both of them. Shannon definitely looked calmer now. He'd given her quite a scare, and she had only left him alone for 30 minutes to set up their breakfast before she would go and wake him up. She knew he was ashamed. He didn't even want to look at her, but she needed him to cooperate. These cheese buns are good, huh? She helped herself to one more, 
I didn't know Cam could make this. It was her mom. He corrected, eyes fixed on his coffee. Oh, really? Yeah, she's visiting. Cam brought food for an entire army. Kelly nodded. One more reason not to ask her friend for more help. She didn't want to spoil their family time. So, I think we should go to the hospital. What do you say? His eyes darted to her and she saw he was terrified. You do want me to meet Janine, don't you? He swallowed hard and looked around the kitchen for an excuse. She needs you, Shan. Be brave for her, please. Her hands went to his one more time, squeezing them for emphasis. Okay. His voice was so hoarse that it barely came out, but it was enough for her. As she drove his car, she kept throwing glances at him, shrinking over the passenger seat. How could such a big guy become so small? Her heart was breaking for him and she knew the only way she would be able to help him would be to face that like a job. If she didn't keep her mind focused, her feelings would cloud her judgment and more people would suffer. Concentrating on the road ahead, she made a list of everything she had to do, and when she parked his car, her determination was so obvious that Shannon had no choice but to follow suit. Hi, uh, we are here to see Miss Janine. Um, she turned to Shannon. Bernaeva. The nurse recognized him right away. Right this way, Mr. Lado. She has been asking about you. They followed her through one of the hallways and stopped in front of a door. You can go in. Take your time. She needs a friendly face. Shannon turned to Kelly, but she just gestured him to go without her. I want to have a word with the doctor first. She smiled reassuringly and watched him go to the girl that was lying on the hospital bed, looking at them with confusion written all over her face. When he sat by her side, Kelly turned to the nurse. My name is Kelly Savage. I'm his assistant. She nodded at him through the glass. Can I talk to her doctor? Of course, Miss Savage. If you could just wait here by the nurse station, please. Kelly followed her further down the hall where she could still see inside the room. While she waited for the doctor, she called Emma and asked if she could borrow one of the drivers Jared had under his payroll. Much to her surprise, her friend sighed an apology and said Jared would kill her if he found out. Are you kidding me, Emma? It's for Shannon. I know, that's exactly the point. Do you even know what's happening? Is this really the time to be teaching him a lesson? I'm sorry, Kelly, I really am. Good luck. Emma hung up on her, leaving her glued to the floor. Were these people serious? Miss Savage, a smart-looking doctor, was standing in front of her. She blinked her confusion away before focusing on him. I'm Dr. Matheson. Nice to meet you. She shook his hand. Nice to meet you, doctor. So, how is Janine? Physically, she's recovering as fast as it can be expected. Mentally, however, um, she needs to be around her loved ones, but she has to grieve. Losing a child is always a hard blow and different people react in different ways. But one way or another, the grieving period needs to be respected. I understand she doesn't have family here in the U.S. Yes, but her mother is flying in today. Good. The more you keep an eye on the both of them, the better. Doctor, will she ever be able to have kids? Yes, but she would have to be monitored very closely. I can give you some brochures. There are many support groups and counseling for women and couples who go through the same situation. Oh, please, I I'd like that. She shifted uncomfortably. About the remains, they have been cleared for release. We just need one of them to sign the documents. And if you don't mind, I would like to keep her here to run some final tests, but she should be discharged by the end of the day. Fine, no problem. I need to run some errands. Can he stay in her room? 
Sure, her visiting hours are not restricted. Excellent. Thanks, doctor. As he walked away, Kelly approached the door and just stood there, looking at the couple in front of her. All of Shannon's anxiety and fears seemed to have disappeared at the sight of his weak and fragile girlfriend. He had his back to her, all his attention focused on the big blue eyes staring lovingly at him. There was something real between them, all right. Kelly stepped in slowly and cleared her throat to announce her presence. Shannon got up and turned to face her. Kelly, I want you to meet Janine, my girlfriend. She didn't know how to react, but she let him pull her closer to the bed. Yeah, baby, this is Kelly. Her big blue eyes scanned Kelly's face dreamingly and she spoke in a tiny yet firm voice. It is very nice to finally meet you, Kelly. You too. How are you feeling? Fine. She shrugged and looked around the room as if she didn't know where she was. Shannon, Kelly turned to him. I spoke to the doctor. He thinks she can be discharged later today. He smiled, visibly relaxed. And Andrew's remains are cleared as well. You just have to sign some papers. Last night you said something about her mother. Do you know what time she lands? He rubbed his eyes trying to remember. 3 p.m., I guess. What's her name? Yulia. Janine spoke next to them. She lands at 2.45. Kelly nodded. Perfect. I will arrange for her to be picked up and brought here. Where are you going? Shannon asked when she walked through the door. I have some things to do. Call me if you need anything. She walked away before he could protest. When the night has come And the land is dark And the moon is the only light 
Stand by me, Richie, honey, he's dead. They were dragging him away from Eddie, and he refused to say Eddie's body, or at least they were trying to drag him away, and he refused to leave, because Richie Tozier could not, would not believe that Eddie Casbrack had died in its lair among grey water and canalization odors after nearly killing it. That was not the death Eddie deserved. Eddie deserved no death. Please, Bev, Ben, we can still help him. We have to get him out of here. Bill, don't you understand? Mike, please. He cried desperately as he held Eddie's bandaged face in his hand, cupping both of his cheeks. Blood was still running out of Eddie's mouth, black in the darkness down there and the faint white of his glassy, staring eyes reflected the little light that stemmed from somewhere in this darkness. Somewhere. That was where the canalization was breaking down. Somewhere was where daylight found a way into this gloomy hideaway. Somewhere was where they had to go now, where the others only, indeed, would go, because there was no way in hell Richie would leave Eddie alone in this place. Richie, we have to go, Beverly urged him, shaking Richie's shoulders. No, he screamed as loud as he could. With his eyes glowing with insanity and his wildly messed up curls, he must look like an absolute madman to his friends, but frankly, he did not care. Richie, we have to. Do you want to die here too? Two. That little word was what gave Richie the rest, and his hands wandered to Eddie's shoulders and shook him, shook him so that his blood got on Richie's glasses and his skin and his clothes and into his mouth and all those parts of him that Eddie could have touched. Chew? He repeated and his voice broke off into a whisper. He's not dead, Ben. He's not dead. Can anyone see it? We have to get him to the surface, he'll be okay. A thunder in the distance signified the walls breaking in. Water rushed into its lair. Soon the losers were knee-deep in it. Richie, come with us. They kept pulling him, his shoulders, his shirt, even his legs, or at least that was what he felt. But he held on to Eddie, not willing to let him go again. He was not dead. Why did they all fail to see it? In those eyes, there was the shimmer of life. It had not ceased, nor would it ever. Losers are supposed to stick together, he cried out, and now there were tears of despair in his eyes. We can't leave him to die here. He's already dead, Richie, Bill shouted at him all of a sudden. There's nothing we can do to help him anymore, but all of us will die if we don't get out of here. Richie's hands went numb then. It was Big Bill speaking, and if Bill, who hadn't accepted George's death in months, was so convinced that Eddie was gone... A hoarse sob broke out of Richie's throat, and he covered his face with his hands. All he wanted to do was weep, and so he didn't even realize how the others put him onto his feet, how he started running, feet splashing in the water that was constantly growing higher and higher. And then, at a fork in the tunnels under dairy, his glasses smudged with blood, dirt, and his own fingerprints, it hit him like machine gunfire. He was leaving Eddie. He was leaving the man who... The man who... Rich sobbed again as the feelings he held for Eddie welled up in his breast and he looked at the losers running and slowed his pace. And then he turned around and left his friends to be with Eddie, whom he had forgotten for years but without whom, after finding him again, he could not be. As he reached him, after what seemed like an eternity of stumbling through the endless tunnels, 
Eddie was in the water up to his throat. He was not standing up. Richie dropped to his knees until he was throat deep in the dirty water himself and cupped at his cheeks again. Eddie, Eddie, I'm here. He whispered into Eddie's ears above the roaring waters that broke in over them. We did it, Eds. We killed it. We did that. You too. You're so brave, Eds. And I knew you could do it. Now it's over. You just have to come with me and we'll be free. Eddie did not answer. He must be unconscious, Richie thought, and one of his hands wandered to Eddie's throat, where it felt no pulse. Richie's hand sank down, and he stared at Eddie's faint figure in the darkness, with his lips slightly parted, holding the breath that was so superfluous now that Eddie would never breathe again. No, Eddie would never breathe again. Now Richie knew it. He knew that all they had said was true, and he also knew that he wanted to stay down here and find his certain death at Eddie's side. And while around him all hell kept breaking loose, he leaned down to kiss Eddie's uninjured cheek and whispered, See you on the other side, Eddie Spaghetti. He knew how much Eddie had hated the names Richie had called him. But Richie, in his own way, had been coping with his suppressed feelings for Eddie that had plagued him since he'd been 10 years old, feelings that he could never show in Derry, Maine, of the 1980s. But now it was 2016, and he should have told him, except that Eddie was married to his mother. And Richie had no business or further disturbing his life after Mike had already done so with his call. But now Eddie was dead and gone and would never ever come back again. And Richie regretted every single opportunity he had not taken to confess this love to Eddie. Life was short and Eddie's had been shorter. And Richie would never, not in the maybe last 10 minutes of his life, forgive himself for never telling Eddie as little as he would forgive Eddie for basically giving him an anxiety attack when he told him, after he had been impaled by the fucking clown, that he had to tell him something. Richie's heart had jumped and then Eddie had told him he'd fucked his mother. But what was the point of thinking about this now? As the water threatened to swallow all of them, to carry Eddie away from Richie, Richie slung his arms around Eddie's waist. The water around them was significantly darker than the rest that filled the cave, and as Richie touched Eddie's torso, he shivered upon feeling his broken ribs. Eds, he whispered then, even though he had already said his parting words, and he really would have loved see you on the other side, Eddie Spaghetti, to be his last words, but he never had told Eddie what feelings his heart held. Eds, I love you. Hear me? I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. And then he cried, his tears mingling with the water. He cried with his arms around Eddie, cried for all the lost moments that they never had shared and never would share, cried until... Richie heard a weak but distinct cuffing on his shoulder. And most importantly, he felt it. And then Eddie's hands were on his shoulders, gripping him so weakly that it was almost concerning. Almost because Eddie was dead, wasn't he? Eddie? Richie whispered, then screamed his name and tore away from Eddie's embrace. Eds! Hey, Rich. Eddie crooked and his gaze wandered down his body to the pulsating, oozing wound that was still losing blood. It hurts, he whispered, and Richie could only fathom how much it must hurt because Eddie's head fell back and low to the side as he passed out again. But there was fire in his eyes, burning concerningly low, yet it was there, and Richie knew he had to preserve it. I'll get you out of here, Eds, he whispered. Ben! Ben, where's Richie? Where's Rich? Oh no, 
Beverly cried hysterically as the four remaining losers stumbled out of the collapsing New Boat Street 29. Mike and Bill were standing there, coughing out the dust of the house's debris. But upon Beverly's words, they turned back towards the house, their old nemesis, and stared and stared and stared, but Richie was nowhere to be seen. But right as their hands entwined and tears rolled down Beverly's cheeks, as they held on to each other, barely more than half of the Losers Club that would never be the same again, as the doorway of 29 Newbold Street broke in, there was a figure, or rather two molten into each other, breaking through the debris and they could see Richie staggering towards them, Eddie in his arms from whom blood was still dripping onto the dried-out grass and the dusty path towards the house. And Rich's face was covered in blood and dirt, just like his glasses, but he was alive, and holding Eddie and crying out to them words that they could not understand through the noise of the collapsing house. But when they approached, the losers could see just the faintest twitch of Eddie's hand, that wrapped itself around Richie's, and that was when they knew. Richie stayed with Eddie, would not leave his side at the hospital bed. At first, he was still thinking of how Sonia Capsprague would have reacted to seeing her son in this situation, but Sonia was dead, and the thought soon pushed aside. The losers came and went, and Eddie did not awake from his coma for more than a week, and all this time Richie sat at a chair next to his bed, slept in a bed next to his bed, and reached out for his hand whenever he thought there was a tiny movement or whenever he just felt like holding at his hand, feeling skin on skin. The day was bound to come that Eddie would wake up, but Richie was not so sure of that, and he feared the day when the heart rate monitor would go flat Beep beep Richie, silencing him forever, for he knew that if this happened, he would not want to live again. Myra Kasprak came and went and Richie would not talk to her, and even though it infuriated her to see this strange man next to her husband all the time, there was not much she could do, and all her screams and insults went into Richie's one ear and out of the other immediately. Then. It was 11.43 p.m. in the night of a day that Richie had lost count of. He was staring out of the window and holding at his hand in the silence that was only disturbed by the steady beeping of the heart rate monitor. He could feel the faintest little movement in his hand, and before he even could react, there was Eddie's voice that transported him back to before all of this had happened when he'd seen him again and the forgotten feelings had returned to his heart. Rich, Eddie stuttered, and as if struck by lightning, Richie let go of Eddie's hand, or at least he tried to, because Eddie's hand was all of a sudden wrapped around his own, tight like a vice, with a power that Richie didn't even know Eddie possessed. Eddie, Richie cried out with relief. Eddie adds, it's over now, it's almost over and done with, we've killed it. Were you serious? Was the first thing Eddie asked, looking directly at Richie. About what? Richie asked. About being married to your mom? Fuck you, bro. Eddie said weakly, but there was a plead in his eyes. Richie, I'm serious, were you? About what? Richie repeated, puzzled, about what you said down in the tunnels. Don't you remember? I love you, I love you, I love you. Oh, you heard that? You were basically dead. Richie's face had turned bright red, and for once there was no smart-ass reply he could give. His tongue was numb and frozen in his mouth. I heard it, and I wanted to know whether you were serious. Eddie glared at him now but the pleading was still in his eyes. Not so impatient, Eddie Spaghetti, Richie said. He took a deep, deep breath and squeezed Eddie's hand as if it were an anchor that he could hold on to. Fuck, what did he have to lose? Yeah, I was. 
he said simply, anxiously waiting for Eddie's reply. Eddie said nothing, just stared at his face, and a smile bloomed in his. Trash mouth being serious. Well, then I'll be serious too. Eddie sat up, moaning as the pain overwhelmed him, but he would not sit down again, and he leaned in towards Richie's face, and Richie hadn't even grasped what was happening when Eddie's lips touched his. It was a little kiss, but it held enough meaning for Richie to know that it wasn't destined to be the only one they shared, and that was all he needed to know. Este foi o SBC Fanfic. Por enquanto, você pode me apoiar se inscrevendo no feed ou seguindo o podcast no seu agregador favorito. Além, é claro, de mostrar o podcast para uma amiga. Se você escreve fanfic em inglês ou em português, por favor, me dá um alô. Eu quero ter você aqui no podcast. Para mandar e-mail para mim, escreva para bookclub.com.br Eu sou arroba monicasanoli no Instagram, arroba monicasan__oli no Twitter e você pode saber mais sobre o meu trabalho em monicasanoli.com.br Todos os links para contato estão na descrição do episódio. Até a próxima!